Hey, Patrick, it's Dave. I haven't called you in a while. I just wanted to uh, touch base with you and let you know that uh, I've been going through some things in my own life, just as I know we all are, and illnesses and just lots of things going on and, you know, kind of the hectic pace of life. And uh, just kind of wanted to give you some perspective on how your project has been really helpful to me, you know, just to kind of further encourage you to keep things going um, in that, you know, I've really had a lot of, gotten a lot of great um, guidance from a couple of your guests that you've had on who have kind of led me to other guests, mostly being Stephen Jenkinson and Charles Eisenstein, and just taking away, you know, a bit of their philosophy and a bit of their wisdom and kind of applying it to my own life for situations that I'm finding extensively relevant every day. Um, I really have found them to really be kind of profound to me in a lot of ways, and um, I, I wouldn't know about them had it not been for your project. And I think that's kind of the beauty of your project and the length you've gone to have on all your guests. A lot of your guests are kind of networked together, and I do realize that. But, you know, that one leads to another, and, you know, maybe exploration of one guest's work can really have an effect on one person, and I think that's kind of the one of the big things to take away from your project that you're you're offering people, you know, and um and that you're really you're really giving people something for them to take away with. Even I just finished listening to your Sam Adler Bell podcast and I listened to Know Your Enemy, I think it's a great podcast and um you know, it was just cool even to hear him in a in a different light talking about something different than he you know, somewhat does in his podcast he talks about the right obviously. But um yeah, you know, just kind of the content you're bringing to people. And I just wanted just to further give you more encouragement and let you know that your project is really doing something for a lot of us and really helping a lot of us, you know, find guidance and listen to other people who are kind of justifying or, um, I don't know, just kind of letting us know that the things we're going through are normal and that there's nothing wrong with us. And, um, you know, that, that you know, what's, what's seen as being kind of insane today in this world is really just a, a, a sane approach to an insane world. And insanity is just kind of how we're all coping with things and medicating ourselves, like that's the real insanity. And our sanity is kind of the insanity that we feel over it. And I feel like <laughs> that's kind of the biggest takeaway I've gotten from a lot of your content. So anyways, man, keep up the good work, and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. And I'll uh, catch you soon. hope you're doing well. Dave, thanks so much for the call. Thank you for calling back and calling to drop me a line there. That's really great. Thank you so much. And I have a lot of thoughts or, or things I would like to say about what you um, bring up in that call. First of all, just it's beautiful. That's the first first thing I want to say is just thank you so much for your encouragement. If you look down in the description of this episode, you'll find uh, two timestamps. One's going to be for when the introduction ends and the interview begins. And you'll also find a second timestamp for when the interview ends and when the response to this drop me a line call will begin. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, visit lastborninthewilderness.com. Links in the description below. If you'd like to draw Patrick a line, there are two ways to do that. For those in the United States, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a voicemail of up to three minutes in length. Second, you can drop an audio file by following the instructions through the link in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Khalil Avi.
Avi is trained in social anthropology and social science research methods, and he's worked with practitioners and academics from multiple fields. And he focuses on how human and environmental and human-to-human relations shape each other over time. And so he's done a lot of interdisciplinary research on fisheries, historical ecology, hunting, and environmental management. And I became aware of his work because of an article that he had published at Gods and Radicals titled Don't Shoot the Messenger, Invasive Species and Halting Biodiversity Loss. And actually Avi recorded his reading of the article for the Gods and Radicals YouTube channel. I'm going to play the first uh, little bit of that just so you get an idea of what he is posing in this article. Halting biodiversity loss is demanded by XR, alongside other climate movements. But who decides what halts biodiversity loss? Most of these movements directly address established governance actors. At best, XR proposes legally binding citizen assemblies informed by expert knowledge. So who's going to hear these demands in these organisations or enact? the decisions of these assemblies. What is the status quo amongst these organisations and their experts for halting biodiversity loss? The same questions can be asked for all of the demands of contemporary climate mobilisations. Hence, the status quo on how climate demands are enacted is critical. So what is the status quo? So when he talks about XR, he's, he's of course referring to Extinction Rebellion. So he's really questioning this idea of what does it mean to halt biodiversity loss, in particular when it comes to uh, invasive species, right? Uh, That is something that we get into in this episode. I really try to have him unpack some of these ideas that he explores in his article. But when we ask the question, what does it mean to halt biodiversity loss? What are some of the unexamined assumptions that exist in academia, in conservation, in ecology, in all of these various scientific disciplines, uh, what are some of the underlying assumptions that we have that come directly from uh, nationalism as well as colonialism? That's kind of something we get into as well in this interview, uh, talking about how colonialism and the kind of historical processes that have led to colonial projects like we see in the United States and we see in other parts of the world, uh, how that informs our understanding of what an invasive species is. Avi is in the United Kingdom, so he's coming at it from more of that perspective, but this applies to pretty much every location in the world. Uh, He understands that uh, each place is unique in how they're going to deal with the dramatic changes that are coming as a result of abrupt climate disruption. Uh, But what he really wants to pose is this idea that what we think of as invasive species are are really just projections. We're putting this uh, kind of ideological overlay on this subject. So when we think of like, what's an invasive insect species, an invasive animal species, or an invasive plant species, then in fact, if you look at the if you pull out and you go out a little wider, if you have a longer view, uh, a larger view of what biology and the life systems in a particular area are trying to do, uh, what we think of as an invasive species is actually laying the groundwork for biological succession to occur. So again, as we enter into a climate-disrupted future, as we enter into a a future of, of rapid ecological change, Uh, for good or for bad, uh, we're going to have to accept the fact that species are going to try to adapt as rapidly as they can. And if we keep on imposing our worldview on the world, thinking that we know what is best 
for not only ourselves, but for other uh, non-human life, then we're just going to continue to shoot ourselves in the foot, essentially. And that's what Avi is kind of proposing here, is like we need to learn how to work with these processes, not be in opposition to them, not to engage in a warlike relationship with it. So I really thank Avi for taking time to speak with me. I am really looking forward to what he comes out with next. He's uh, got some really great writings. Of course, his, his article, uh, Gods and Radicals, is amazing. I would recommend people check it out. I'll put a link to that down below. And I would just ask that people go to his blog. Uh, you can go to khalilavi.org. That's K-H-A-L-I-L-A-V-I.org. Everything you need to know about his work can be found there. Thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Here is my interview with Dr. Khalil Avi. Avi, thank you for for agreeing to do this. I, first, I'm sorry about the time issue <laughs> setting up interviews with people that are on the other side of the planet um occasionally there's time you know like time changes and things like that super complicated occasionally um so thank you for being patient with me and getting a hold of me and letting me know i was actually late for my interview <laughs> so so yeah sorry about that um but i i just yeah so thank you for for uh for doing this and uh you know what caught my attention was an article that you had published at gods and radicals uh, don't shoot the messenger invasive species in halting biodiversity loss. And so I guess I'll just start with what you're referring to when you talk about, um, you know, invasive species and halting biodiversity loss. I mean, you're at the very beginning of the article, at the very least, you're saying that, uh, you know, the status quo of, of halting biodiversity loss, you're kind of attributing that to that language to Extinction Rebellion or XR and other climate mobilization. So when they talk about that, what do you think they're actually referring to when they talk about biodiversity loss? Okay, so basically, just to give a bit of context to uh, this article is my doctoral research was actually on hunting um, and environmental management. And I just noticed um, and I did a study on um, the particular culling practices that they used in the place that I worked. And then I got invited to a number of events to do with um, wild boar management because they're seen as a, yeah, sort of a pest or invasive species at the moment in lots of different parts of the world, from Hong Kong to the UK to Europe, US. Um, and then that just brought around to me most of the work that I've done in the, you know, my life's not very long, but what, what part of my life has existed is sort of what the, what do environmental uh, policies translate to in practice? Uh, what do they actually look like? Um, and culling, which is one method of dealing with invasive species, um, is it, you know, it's a huge worldwide endeavor there's no single study that has put a number on it uh, and i would like to do that at some point but um it's it's very very large but coming coming around to answer your, answering your question the reason i came to that is obviously you know i'm we're all engaging with with what's going on at the moment and so you look at the demands and you see the demands of something and uh you participate in numerous aspects and but you know you don't you don't participate in something 
without any sort of uh, critical thinking. So you ask yourself, so what do these demands, what would they actually look like um, if if they were met? But first, they're demands that are made of a certain entity, right? So they are being made, at least in the UK I'm talking about, right? Because XR uh, does have variations around the planet. Um, is made of, you know, is a demand made to uh, we Parliament or the sitting government within Parliament? And so if they're to accept that demand, then well, what does that mean in practice? Um, and so then you've got to look at what, what, are, what right now are considered the main reasons for biodiversity loss and what are considered the main ways to halt it. So you go and look at like the general stuff. So you go and look at the IPBES report recently or the UN stuff, IUCN, or the Aichi biodiversity targets, these are all sort of global agreements that are akin to the stuff that you hear about on climate change more generally. And within all of them, um, since at least 20 years, maybe, may, yeah, yeah, no, at least 20 years, within the top uh, handful has always been uh, a major threats to biodiversity are invasive species um, so we need to uh, eradicate invasive species as a way of halting biodiversity loss. So there's many other aspects to halting biodiversity loss within what, what I call the status quo. The status quo being what, what I consider the status quo being what the main NGOs, environmental NGOs, the main uh, bodies dealing with biodiversity at a global scale, what do they consider and what, what are they doing? That is essentially what I talk about. That includes um, a lot of wildlife biology and conservation science, but not all of it. Um, and those are debates within those subjects that evidently the... the when, 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 when one side, when one part of that debate is taken up by uh, larger organisations than academics themselves, then the side of the debate that, that is getting listened to would rather not give air to the rest of the other sides of the debate. Uh, and they do exist. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm going off a little bit. There. You're okay. So you're, yeah. you're presenting the other side of the debate. Is that what you're saying? I'm presenting, uh, well, there's multiple parts of this debate. Let me give you a slightly, just a random exchange I had on Twitter the other day. Okay. So I proceeded to, to, to delete because it just, uh, I just realized it was pointless. That's, exchange. that's how Twitter gets um, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's not to do with invasive species as such, but it is to do with the with a similar problem here where the person was saying that there are multiple scientific papers that demonstrate that it's better to consume sustainable palm oil than it is to boycott palm oil. Uh, many of those papers written by people in the same department that I work, by the way, so I know them personally. Okay. Um, and But this was someone else on Twitter that was raising it. Um, and I disagreed, but I, we realised, or at least I realised, through a little bit of Twitter exchange, that they thought I was disagreeing with with those particular papers. What I was disagreeing with 
with was that the whole framework in which that this debate was taking place, which is the sustainability framework, is itself the problem. Not whereas they were talking about the debate within the sustainability framework. Um, right. And so then you realize you just asked someone else. So it's not that certain points of a debate do not have a truth in them. It's just that they're addressing it at different scales within different frameworks that are not uh, often, I mean, because many of the na natural science influence subjects have no reflexivity, no self-awareness of their inbuilt assumptions. Uh, so that's where, the, where some of the more uh, certain types of social science can bring those things in. Right. Um, and that's partly what I do. Right. So you're kind of trying to reframe the discussion a bit and say there's there's these unexamined uh, assumptions and frameworks that you're operating within. Even if it is a science, there are uh, unexamined... Yeah, and this is one of the engaging in discussions with people in, in, within XR and certain climate change movements um, is that there's this, this idea of appeal to an appeal to science, like just do what the science says. That is a very, very odd thing to say. And you know, <laughs> as soon as I say something like that, someone will be like, oh, so you're, you're you know, climate change. This has got nothing to do with climate change skepticism. This is literally about understanding uh, the, co the context in which uh, science is produced. What does that idea that you've just made up and discovered based on a certain... A set of data which has lots of truth in it what does that mean when you put that into practice so for example if you're a policy maker there's this idea that if i make a policy that it's going to have this effect in the world it doesn't it doesn't work like that and, and and i'm sure most policy makers in some sense understand that but it's the same as doing a piece of research on something and going okay we can conclude uh that a is related to B. Um, so what was, a, what was a example I heard the other day? I can't remember. Anyway, oh yeah, that's the, you know, so this is causing biodiversity loss. Then within the same breath and the same paper, okay, therefore we you know we should increase awareness campaigns. We should do this policy. We should do that. Where is the research as to whether or not the process from noting that there is a uh, issue with biodiversity loss to actually the process by which you're going to uh, address that, the, re the research between the conclusion and the practice is usually uh, one that is assumed. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent no, here. No, so. you're good. So I just want to bring, bring it back to this discussion around what an invasive species is, because I think this might get to what you're talking about here. Um you know, as, as you said, it's defined as one of the greatest threats to biodiversity is invasive species. And so let me first just ask, you know, you mentioned culling, um, but what are some of the ways in which, and what, first of all, let me, let me ask you this, what is commonly understood as what invasive species are? Like, how do we normally define okay. and understand what an invasive species is? And then maybe from there, we can break down how, you know, as you say, and the, the, the title of your essay, of your article is Don't Shoot the Messenger. And the way you frame it is that in so-called invasive species, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we can 
get to this at some point. Um, but the idea is that these are actually indications of something bigger that's happening here. You know what I mean? So yeah. I just want to ask, okay, so for the very beginning, the basis of this is like, what do we commonly understand invasive species to be and what they do to ecosystems and bioregions and all of that? Okay, so there is the common idea which is not agreed on, but we'll, we'll say what we'll come. The common idea is that invasive species are non-native species. That is species that are somehow conceived to be foreign to a particular place. Right? That's not even agreed upon once you actually look at the practice of where money and policy is spent on invasive species. And often it uh, will be expanded to species that are... Uh, native so to speak uh, to a place they're just deemed to cause too many problems uh, to whatever the the particular human project is going on there I think a, a, a better way for me to ground this would be to go through a couple of historical points um, that give an idea of where this comes from mm -hmm. um, yeah and so first I'll just mention that the I'm I'm not an expert in in uh, all of the details uh, of all the cases of invasive species in comparison to some other experts out there. One of them being the Tao Orion book that I quote in the article, and uh, which which she herself notes um, that within the American context. Uh, it emerged with the Second World War and sort of ideas about having um, basically foreign elements that you want to evict um, from your particular territory. And then she notes that earlier, in the beginning of the 20th century, there, well, what you could effectively call pests uh, to do with the relation of expansion of agriculture and how to manage them. Now, that's a particular American... Uh, side to the story where my expertise comes in is to do with um, British colonialism because that's where my research the history of it is based in and in that context which obviously does have a relationship to the American context but is not exactly the same um, what you effectively have or well Cyprus is where my main research was based right so um, what you have there is in the late 19th century when British turned up in uh, Cyprus, similar to many other places they colonised, um, they brought with them a set of species that they liked um, to hunt, which they would call game animals. Those animals would become protected, along with a particular set of animals that they chose to decide were good wild animals. The criteria for which... Um, is, is not something that I'm going to spend my life mind-boggling how they selected some of the criteria for the, uh, these animals because they don't necessarily make any ecological sense. Um, it's you know, very arbitrary, um, which is a certain problem that still exists. But anyway, so you set aside um, certain animals that are good wild animals, good game animals, and everything else... Um, is essentially fine if it doesn't get in the way of your pursuit 
um, of, of the pursuits of your empire or your of your society. If it does get in the way, uh, then you designate it as a harmful species and therefore it should be removed. In addition, what you get with a later development is that this becomes in itself um, a demonstration of the legitimacy uh, of, of your environmental administration, showing that you're actually doing something. You're actually managing to control and manage uh, a territory in terms of the land. And so you turn uh, some of these invasive species into um, a scapegoat in, a, in and of itself. So it's now it's less about getting in the way of your own, own endeavours and demonstrating as an administration, whether it's colonial or whether it's a democratic environmental administration, demonstrating to your membership and your citizens that we are doing something. We're spending money uh, on protecting this environment. And it's a very easy and simple logic to say this species uh, is causing this problem to this one. And if we delete uh, this one, which uh, there's too many of or it's causing too much harm, then we'll have uh, more of the other one. Where my research went was into actually looking at the methods for eradicating uh, certain species and demonstrating that they didn't even work. Mm, um, yeah. So that was where I was going, was looking at it technically before then elaborating into whether it makes ecological sense, uh, whether it makes economic sense, and then obviously the political dimensions was first like, does it actually technically work? Um, and in the particular case that I was looking at, no, it didn't work for a number of reasons. It, in that case, I have usually uh, the most basic mathematic, mathematical logic you can think of, which is you deal with something as a population of homogenous individuals. So let's say there's 100 of something and they're all the same. So if we delete 50, then you know, next year, with, even with a little bit of re re reproduction, it won't be 100 again, right? So you're going to keep managing and reducing that population like that. Not unfortunately, but uh, fortunately, or however you want to think about it, uh, species don't work like that. They have different uh, ways of reproducing, different social uh, hierarchies or not hierarchies, uh, different social structures, which mean that when you remove certain portions of the population, you can actually end up with more of that species the next year um, for certain different reasons to do with breeding. Anyway, so there's a whole technical problem there. And then when I encountered, uh, when I researched it into this at a wider level, dealing with wild uh, boar, and then I engaged with Tower Ryan's book, and she essentially addresses that point, but more to do with plants in the US. And because I'm not a plant person, really, I'm <laughs> yeah. an animal person, so okay. to speak. Yeah. Uh, and her one maps into a similar issue which is trying to remove certain plants and just failing at doing it and some of it is really boils down to a couple of basic reasons one is it's just bad biology behind it so you have a degraded uh, landscape or ecosystem habitat um, which has already you know been polluted loads of species have died 
how uh, you know biodiversity has dropped. However, it so happens that some species manage to do well in this particular niche, whether they're local or not local, or native or not native, depending on what terminology you want to use. Um, and then these are treated as an invasive species, whereas in some sense all they are is what is, are the first generation in a succession of species. So there, so if you keep removing them, you basically go back to square one in what's what's called evolutionary succession, because all that's happening is the the first uh, set of species are trying to lay down the framework on which diversity can then build. So if you keep cutting that back. I think there's a good example from New Zealand with gorse bush. So gorse bush was introduced at some point. Anyway, the government uh, gives farmers, <coughs> excuse me, subsidies to remove gorse bush. Gorse bush is a pioneer species, and if uh, uh, one fellow has demonstrated with a large portion of land there that if you just let the gorse grow out and 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 trees pick up after 20 years, the gorse itself will actually disappear. But if you keep cutting it back actually will just grow stronger and stronger. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. so what you're saying is like what we think of as this, again, invasive species, which is going to take over the ecosystems and destroy all these other species um, in that process. That's actually laying the groundwork for what you call biological or uh, evolutionary succession. Is that what you said that that term you used? Bio- I'm, I'm saying that in, in, in many examples, that is true. That is true. Okay. I, 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 I may sound slightly polemic in that article because I'm pushing back a very, a very large status quo. Evidently, I'm aware that in each particular context, uh, there's going to be a, a slightly different answer. And that's why in the article, the unifying point of the article is to not do that type of science of invasive species are a and uh, uh, something that needs to be eradicated to stop biodiversity loss at a global level. And then we're going to send that down as a policy, which filters down into certain subsidies that's going to play out in very odd ways. No, what you need to do is you need to form uh, democratic committees of people within those areas that does include uh, scientists and other experts to work out what is actually going on here and deal with that in within that context. Yeah, there, in that way. Yeah, there is a kind of a, I would say a radical political element to what you're saying, which is you're you're attributing like you're saying one of the good things about XR, about extinction extinction rebellion is that they have at least on some level have this idea of councils of coming to collective decisions in some way. I don't know how true or if that's actually being practiced uh, effectively right now, but I remember I did interview one of the co-founders of XR. Um last year or sometime earlier this year and well that, they have a in yeah. theory their demand is that if they get demand two which is halting biodiversity loss then demand three would be to do that through citizens assemblies whether all of the decision making about what's going on now until you get there is organized in that way is another question yeah but sorry yeah. To no you're good and i was just yeah that reminds me because again our another interview <laughs> i interviewed a representative of the um make road java green again um project or okay. yeah Great. yeah and that's you know that's like the ecological component of the rajavan revolution which of course is is 
democratic confederalism, I think is how you say that. And, um, yeah. you know, kind of communes, collective decision-making, there's multi-level decision-making processes that are very democratic and in- includes everybody in the, in the, their respective areas. And what I really liked about talking with this representative, um, I think his name is Habat. He, uh, was explaining like, well, each region is going to be different. And when we deal with the ecological component of this revolution, trying to build an ecological society, each place is going to be different and for, for various reasons, you know. And, and I think that's what you're saying is like, okay, in a very general sense, we need to examine our assumptions about what biodiversity is and what it takes to halt biodiversity loss and what we think of as invasive species in general. But each place and each locality is going to be very different in how that's done. And so the radical political side, I would say radical political side of your argument is really valid because it's like, well, then how do we implement these ideas if everything is so localized? And that's the solution to me. I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from when you say that. Yeah. All of what, all of the, all of what I'm saying can, does not make sense to me without that component and you picked a, a you know a perfect example um, in in that in that little book. Although I would raise one uh, additional issue here, which is I just think that it's particularly pertinent right now um, that with already certain people in in different parts of the world, even right here in the UK, um, experiencing the effects of massive habitat um, and weather changes is that what people consider to be invasive species issues right now are nothing in comparison to how that is going to exponentially increase. And so it's going to become, it's more than a war than it already is and more than a pointless war than it already is. So it's what are you going to do when habitat change is so uh, upset? What are you going to do when you're basically dealing with uh, loads of animals that are refugees because the habitat that they were in is no longer that habitat, so they're moving somewhere else that makes sense for them to live in. Some sort of imagined how it should be, but that's what people, uh, that's been inherited. I mean, but that was what was happening under British colonialism. Um, that's what my master's research was on, which is just having a particular romantic idea of how a particular place should be and then going there and trying to attempt to bring about that landscape painting on some poor bastard's uh, backyard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it wasn't sore until you came there and decided to mess around with it. But yeah. Well, isn't, anyway. isn't this sort of... Uh, uh, they call it um, uh, they call it shifting baseline syndrome. Have you heard this term before? I think that's the name of it. Have you heard that before? No, I've not heard that. No. So it's the idea that what we so in our gen like where we are live right now, we think that this is normal, as in this is the baseline. So if if we're in an environment and ecologically it's a certain way, you know, you have these particular kind of plants and these particular animals and ecosystems in this way, we think, okay, this is, this is the baseline. This is a healthy ecosystem. This is a healthy bioregion, but you know, you, but you go back maybe a few generations and it was very different. You know, it may have been far more complex, far more lush. There might've been a wholly different thing going on, but because of 
whatever is going on, climate change, you know, bi- biodiversity loss, um, development, all the things that come with this. Um, what, for instance, the, the British countryside is an example that was given. It's like, oh, there's these rolling hills and it's this beautiful, idyllic thing. And it's like, well, you know, you go back maybe a thousand years and none of that existed. You know, that was largely because of, agri- from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but agriculture, pastures that were being, uh, you know, developed. And it's like... Well, and, and, and hunting uh, hunting has massively shaped the the british landscape right so so i think the problem is is that there is just a pretty widespread phenomenon of human beings where we think like for instance when you know climate change is currently unfolding right now obviously weather is getting more erratic more more violent more difficult to adapt to i would say Um, there's a lot of other shifts that are happening and i think in maybe a generation or two from now people are going to see that as like oh this is normal and we'll be like, no, it wasn't like this, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's it's the, the baseline has shifted dramatically. And that's been the case, I think, for for most human populations throughout the past several centuries and probably thousands or even millions of years. I, I don't know. But uh, Right. So yeah. and and people move and species move, but if you have a load of hard borders, then you then the ability for people and species to adapt is severely hindered mm-hmm. exactly. i mean it's a, i'm gonna go at a right angle here uh and draw up a, uh, a point in a paper by an anthropologist i like which is that um a lot of the if you to deal with the world as it is today with all of the problems that have already happened rather than wishing that they hadn't happened um is that people would resolve a lot of wealth problems if they were allowed to migrate to where the wealth is uh, rather than be bored. I mean, it's a really obvious point, uh, <laughs> but you know, free movement is, should really be a human right um, because it's a way of adapting to a situation, um, you know, taking into consideration complexity. Anyway, I want that sort of bit of a side point. Right. So, so it's like, um, I feel like what you're kind of putting. Well, let's put it. Let's put it. Put it. Let's put it like this. Um, the I'm trying to <laughs> raise what, 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 what really uh, what what was I re- what was the most important thing that I wanted to communicate in that article, and the most important thing I wanted to communicate um, relates to my sort of the personal project that I like working on, which is. Um, if you're going to work within the framework of trying to sustain what is really not a very good situation, um, as you called it, the uh, re- repeat to me that phrase that you used. Oh, it was a shifting baseline syndrome. Is that what you Right. Yeah. If we're going to take this baseline as something to save, um, I've got a really good whole set of case, uh, as case study that a, a fellow did on this in Alaska, and I link it in the article. Um, then perhaps first there's never a consideration can this habitat itself actually sustain itself now that it's so um, undergone so many stresses so instead of trying to save it and sustain it and freeze things in a certain time or ideal that is you know never admits that it's a completely subjective idea um, which is fine but you know be, be a bit honest about it yeah um then 
if you, you cannot control the complexity of a whole ecosystem, you cannot manage it in that sense. But what you can do is you can say, I'm always going to try and contribute more in to the habitat that I'm participating. I'm going to try and increase the biodiversity. I'm going to, you know, use the, using the, the word that was my favorite that you used, try and increase the lushness of the habitat I'm in. And this is a practice that, has, that ha, exists in many different places. Um, and perhaps the most interesting uh, one that I find is not necessarily the contemporary examples, but looking at what we consider today to be some of the most pristine, iconic, uh, wild places have in fact emerged with uh, human civilizations, whether that's the Serengeti, Yellowstone, uh, the Amazon. Uh, you know, take your pick. My, and there's a not just historic. Even I saw a paper came out the other day as to why certain parts of the Amazon rainforest were more biodiverse. And they identified that the forests, uh, the, what would they call it, the agroecology, that particular uh, society of people that lived there now were conducting, you know, this forest was essentially their garden. They've been planting it in a certain way, but it's not seen like that. Uh, right. Anyway, you sort of get my, I guess. Yeah, well, that's a, that's, so it's interesting because it's like, I feel like the whole sustainability argument or or the movement for more sustainability to me what i understand sustainability is is like do no harm right like just we can be on the planet but we're not going to hurt anything we're not going to waste too much we're going to like just exist as you know free-floating almost non-contributing entities (laughs) and then i feel like regenerative cultures being a regenerative people uh, species is to contribute to the health and vibrancy and the lushness of the biodiversity of the environment that you're a part of. It's acknowledging that human beings are, in fact, crucial elements or have have a crucial role within the broader ecosystems, bioregions, and the planet itself. Um, And I've been really attracted to this idea because it's like, oh, we're not this... Because in a sense, when we talk about invasive species... There's this um, deeper part to that, which is almost like a self-hatred, I feel like. Like, we are the invasive species, too, on the planet. We've spread around the planet and have just eaten up everything in our path. And um, so it's kind of rich when we, within our certain uh, ideology or certain ideological constructs and belief systems, think that we can, uh, you know, stop invasive species from destroying these these pristine environments when if we want to use the definitions that are used for invasive species we kind of embody that in a lot of our practices within this this yeah this, you know. and i notice i notice um i mean this is how entangled we are with other species is that this the the, the species that tend to annoy people hum, uh, humans in general um i can't really generalize human let's say people that do think about species as invasive species tend to be the ones that are quite similar in their social character. That is <laughs> opportunistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they survive because they, because they're willing to just take what is possible, what is available. And that's not a, a biological fact. That's a particular society that both, uh, 
people and animals within that society are participating in. So if you're going to create, you know, uh, I mean, even eating the same food, sharing certain social characteristics, because that's the society that you created. So almost that's the type of animals you're going to get. So, you know, trying to just delete them is not really dealing with the problem. Um, and I, I just mentioned that part because I basically work on 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 corvids, on crows a lot, and and just the way how much they annoy uh, people who cull them across Europe, and they essentially annoy people because they they they're not they don't people don't see themselves as above crows. They see them as a direct competitor to humans, and it's all it's the you know that you that this bird has got the gall to be able to think, you know, that it's going to stand up for itself instead of being a passive uh, animal that is going to be, you know, protected by me. And, yeah, I mean, that's why I like them as well. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I admire when I see these incredibly intelligent species, like, kind of uh, counter, you know, in a way, like, they're kind of, they're like, okay, we see the game here. You know, we're going to counter human beings in their, their games too a little bit. So it's, it's admirable. It's not something to be resentful of. It should, it should, in fact, inspire us to be like, oh, I, I, I see almost a mirror, not a mirror exactly, but a reflection of ourselves and other animals, which should give us more of a, a grounded um, maybe empathy for other species and their desire to exist uh, with us. And, and it's also the, um, the you, you're creating a certain... So I'll just take this example with, with, with crows, right? So if every year you're removing uh, a, a significant portion of a, of, of, of a group or a population, then the effect that has on the unique social structure that different groups of crows have in different parts of the world, in that particular part of the world, is going to be devastating. So you're not allowing that uh, group to come to its own uh sort of stability because which usually uh happens in terms of even population size you're basically like throwing a grenade into that every single year what happens is that those species then do adapt but now the type of society that the the, the social group that those crows are going to have is going to be very different from the one before it's going to be one that can survive in that context so in some sense, you are influencing the behavior of, 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 uh, of those species as well and making them even more unlikable from the perspective of a, you know invasive species uh, perspective. And this is just the, the, the rabbit hole of things that I found out dealing with crows. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I want to point to this. You sent me an article leading up to this interview, um, which is published in The Guardian, uh, the title of which is Quarter of World's Pig Population to, quote, die, uh, quote, to die due to African swine fever. Uh, World Organization for Animal Health warned spread of disease has inflamed worldwide crisis. So in this article, it's saying, and these are domesticated pigs. These are, you know, in um, yeah. factory farms, basically. Um, the article begins saying that about a quarter of the global pig population is expected to die as a result of an, an epidemic of African swine fever. 
according to the Intergovernmental Organization Responsible for Coordinating Animal Disease Control. So, I mean, these are domesticated uh, pigs, as in they're being raised specifically to be eaten as meat for a global market or, or for their respective regions that they're being raised in. Um, and this, you know, you wanted to point, you, you sent this to me because you really wanted to talk about the consequences of our attitudes about invasive species. And, and I want to understand this connection that you're drawing here between what this article is pointing to this. Oh, with it. Yeah. Okay. So what, 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 um, there's many different avenues into this, and how it links into, it's really odd how much it's related to um, nationalism and xenophobia in Europe right now. But that's a whole other story um, of building building borders to stop wild pigs that don't actually work, but they're there to stop refugees and make people feel safe in their little areas. But anyway. Sure. Um, and the amount of militarization of the landscape um to deal with these threatening wild boars because they spread disease can i say despite it actually being can I humans just, that are spreading yeah can i just yeah. say one thing because there's a similar issue here in the u.s with the border between the u.s and mexico which is like everyone's uh-huh. thinking okay yeah it's it's there to quote you know stop refugees or stop migrants or whatever illegal immigration but really it's an ecological catastrophe you're building this wall between this you know, through this desert, basically, and it's just ecologically destructive. So I just wanted to point to the fact that our conceptions of nation states and borders, especially when they become militarized and rigid, actually is ecologically destructive. So anyway, I just wanted to make that point. But for sure, exactly. And but what's, what's happening in this boar case is almost the, the same idea, but coming from the opposite side, which is building uh, building fences on purpose to stop uh, wild animals moving, but in reality, it's part of a nationalist discourse that's just hijacking the environmental discourse, a, a form of like eco-fascism, um, to build, uh, you know, to militarize your your territory um, when you're not really when you when you can't quite do that through political means in the EU, so you've got to find another way to do it. And so the environmental route is that. But what, what I really wanted to bring up about the boar thing is that I have yet to see, except in the forum uh, that I have engaged with, which is a, a great forum that brings together people from across different disciplines, as well as uh, practitioners, vets, um, people involved in culling, hunting, so on and so forth. Apart from that small forum, um, any other forums that I'm aware of um, have looked at their programs, attended, or fellow colleagues who have attended them have never raised, not once, just just raised it, the, the question of considering, you know, should we definitely consider the fact that we're encountering more bore as a negative? Is, is there just not even like space for one track in any of these events to consider whether boar might not be definitely terrible? Right. And and there isn't. And that is mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Um, because what you're having is you're having like what seems to be, although it's much more complicated because the boar move around because of different habitat changes, but in some sense can be looked at as you're getting a, a glut 
of a certain animal. Uh, but because this is a, I, I don't, I don't, wild and domesticated is a problematic division, but we can stick with it. I prefer free and enclosed. Okay. What you have is you have a free animal ro- roaming around that's not conforming to different enclosures, whereas hyper-industrialized pigs are enclosed and can be controlled and sold by the one particular person who's going to own all of that uh, industry. Anyway, that's getting into political economy stuff. The other point that is never raised within any of these forums is why can so many uh, domesticated pigs die so quickly? Because they're in the conditions that that they grow in uh, facilitate that. The absolute density, uh, the lowering of their immune systems, this is all part uh, and parcel of that. And you you can debate it as much as you want but at least have a space to enter that debate. And I, you, I just never see those two things raised. Oh, the, the, the contention is there's this uh, fever, which happens to be labelled African, um, and, you know, it's bad, and it must be, the what, what, what can we blame on? We're going to blame it on the wild boar, even though it's actually primarily transmitted by humans uh, on their clothes and through bits of, uh, pork meat and so on and so forth and we're gonna you know we're gonna show that we're gonna do something about this by killing all of these wild boar you know we're you know, well done us we've actually done something and this is going to protect you know this massive industry rather than trying to address you know why 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 has this this uh, flu exploded anyway you know you have like what was the bird flu before that it, the, these things are phenomena that are not going to go away when you organise things in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and to me, I think the board, the one piece of research that I liked, and then I'll stop talking about pigs, <laughs> uh, it was looking in, in Barcelona where local people were befriending and feeding uh wild boar but the um the government policy was no no no, you can't do this it's dangerous for you we've got to like push these boar back blah 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 whereas people are almost like solving these problems themselves on the ground and then being stigmatized for that um and those who 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 can't deal with it are congratulated um and it's, it's just i just find that amazingly absurd yeah yeah but yeah no, yeah. Rumble No, no, I, I, I get what you're saying, because it does, again, it addresses these deeper assumptions that you're trying to raise. And uh, it's interesting. I think people maybe are uncomfortable because it, it's not like you're discrediting the science. You know what I mean? Like, I think people get the wrong, no, no, they get exactly. the wrong impression. You know Push what I mean? Push it further. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're actually going deeper into the science. You're actually examining the kind of folds or nuances of this very complex thing but it really does challenge people's assumptions and ideologies and uh you know preconceived notions of all of these things and so that makes people uncomfortable and so i think what i want to then i I know i mentioned this as as um at the beginning i guess with my first or one of my early questions which was about how invasive species is like the messenger or, you know, we, we call them invasive species, but what we've defined as invasive species coming into various environments 
um, localities is, uh, is essentially a messenger and that, you know, we're, we're trying to eradicate them. So I, I guess, you know, your uh, challenge, I guess I would ask, what is your challenge then to such climate mobilization movements as Extinction Rebellion and other large-scale mobilizations, which say things like, we need to halt biodiversity loss? You know, what would you maybe pose to them as an alternative in, in their framing of that, uh, that, that issue? Okay, well, you know how to ask the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I don't mean to like say you have like all the answers. You're definitely raising the right questions, though. That's that's. I will say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Well, I mean, I think you, I think you or I or we answered that question before. Uh, it's my, my, but I will add something to it, um, which is, it's not. Um, you need to organize in, in, in a certain way that allows diverse um, contradicting sources of knowledge to be placed up against each other. So that requires someone that has to deal with it in a day-to-day on the ground, someone who theorizes it at a certain level, someone who probably doesn't even engage with it very much, but it's happening within their landscape. These all bring um, different important perspectives that all have some value if brought um, into conversation with each other, rather than one of them being imposed on the rest. Simply, not because that sounds nice and that's all egalitarian, all of that, that's just how you deal with complexity. That's how you you grasp it. There's no person that can come up with one perspective, that one model that can grasp it, as well as using collective intelligence to deal with it. That would be my one answer. So going back to the make Rajava green again, that would be, you know, that's it in, in practice. And there are other examples. Um, and then the second part of my answer to that question um directly to sort of XR um, and climate strikes as well. So, because, you know, not to forget that the youth climate strikes um, and even uh, the most inspiring movement for me right now is actually the Gilets Jaunes in uh, France, uh, which do have an environmental component, just not the one that we, that was heard about a long time ago. Um, And that is, um, it's not a, 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 I've got to frame this in the right way. Just listen to the science is not a good um, way of proceeding as a phrase, as an ideology, as a way of thinking. um, It's really, it's not a good way of proceeding because the science tells you particular facts and truths, but what they, how they can be contextualized and used and practiced um, can be manoeuvred by by anyone. You know, it comes down to the same thing dealing with a particular, you know, you can say a statistic or a number about something, but it depends on how you contextualize that as to what you can do with it. Um, and so that requires that secondary element uh, of communities of practice, um, which I quote in the article on how to do communities of practice mm-hmm. um, that are transformative. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to ramble. What I, what I really want to say is that a, a, a more nuanced understanding of knowledge um, is definitely missing within uh, the, the climate movement and going back to relying on, to use a technical term, like a positivist idea of knowledge is essentially wiping out um, a lot of ecological knowledges from different places, whether they be indigenous, whether they be um, just not what makes it uh, to the top of the you know university idea or what makes it onto the policy paper because some politician liked it. And you need to make space for them even if they're not ultimately listened to um, because they all bring something to the, to the table. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to point to this paragraph uh, towards the latter part of your article. And you say that uh, in some, as the residents of the ZAD in France have learned, which is, uh, I think it translates basically zone to defend or zone of defense. Yeah. And I did, I again, sorry, I, I did an episode about this. I always say this. I spoke to you <laughs> when there was the ma- massive kind of, um, uh, there was the, the French state was coming in and trying to, trying to push all the... Uh, the people that were living in the ZAD uh, off that land, uh, which was originally done to to stand in the way of uh, uh, the, the construction of an international airport, which would destroy the environment, of course. It's a massive development project. But anyway, um, as you say, the residents of the ZAD in France have learned it is critical to be prepared to win. And you suggest that XR, climate strikers, and other mobilizations also prepare for what they mean by halting the loss of biodiversity. Otherwise, success might simply mean more money for the same old failing and unjust environmental practices and institutions. So you're basically, you're saying like... Oh, yeah, and, and yeah. just, just to uh, note a point there, one of the critical elements of the ZAD was that it combined, you know, I, I'm going to generalize people now, but it combined, you know, environmental activists, sort of youth young uh, urbanites with local farmers it wasn't and that that combination as far as i understand and makes sense to me is that combination that's key so that is an important thing uh, especially for xr in the uk is that they are going to need to form some form of alliance with people who actually like grow vegetables and deal with cows <laughs> Uh, and so on and so forth, because just plowing on uh, without establishing alliances with that is uh, is one-sided knowledge. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's, I think this is kind of the thing with, um, I guess, uh, leftists or these sort of radical leftist movements or whatever that are very urban, and so there is this sort of detachment from from the uh, rural side of it. And when it comes particularly to understanding biodiversity biodiversity loss there is a, a i mean it's just it just happens it's not meant to be i'm not blaming or trying to like say yeah. you know no, no, no. Exactly. it's just someone's fault yeah it's just the way it is there just has to be communication here and understanding yeah. and like you said with the zad they at least attempted or have attempted and i think pretty successfully in many cases to kind of unite those two things um but yeah so you're basically what you're challenging us with in that that statement be prepared to win i think that's really interesting because it's like okay, if you extrapolate the consequences of this way of thinking and, and how we're going to, quote, halt biodiversity loss, 
you know, what does that really mean? And that's what you're challenging. And that's what you're expressing in this article is like, okay, what does it mean to win this so this war? Because that's how it's framed as a war against these invasive species and biodiversity loss. So much of the language that's used in environmental mainstream environmental activism, at least is very warlike. It's very much like we got to battle and beat and, you know, have a war against climate change and, and biodiversity loss. So anyway, my, my point is just to ask, you know, or, or ask you to maybe comment on uh, when it comes to these movements, like when you say be prepared to win, you know, what would be the consequences of winning this war against biodiversity loss? Uh, I, I'm not talking about Okay, one minute. There's there's lots of uh, <laughs> maybe I framed that incorrectly. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, no. Bringing the word war and win together. I'm not talking about winning a war. Mm, okay. Um, well, I'm I'm not talking about winning the war against invasive species. Uh, I am talking about winning a class struggle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. That, that, uh, that's that's fine. What I what I specifically mean in the article: be prepared to win. Um, actually it was originally before it got edited was be prepared for success because it relates to the word succession, which is then what happens in your next uh, generation of development, but it doesn't sound as good. Um, <laughs> be prepared to win means if your demands are met, then what are you going to do? Um, and that means you need to know what your demand, you don't need to, but it's, it, there comes a time in the development of any movement or society or group or person, they need to, they need to start thinking about the next steps uh, that happen. Otherwise, they're going to just turn up and there's a cliff edge and whoever else is prepared will be, uh, will be able to step into that breach. Uh, I mean, that is a very Machiavellian way of thinking. Um, you know, most of his philosophy can be boiled down to just be prepared for the moment. Um, but as, sorry to go off on a tangent, as uh, Gramsci pointed out, that is that is what the left needs to do. It needs to understand how to look at the whole field of action and look ahead and see all of those different complexities. And you can't control them, but you can prepare for as many of them as possible for when those moments come, because those moments will come. And that is the op- that's the optimistic message in there, is that there are, there are so many great examples of how uh, you can increase the lushness of this world, and it's being prepared for the moment to um, expand them beyond uh, your own, you know, beyond where they already exist when the right moment comes. And one of those moments would be suddenly you know, a government capitulating to the demand to stop halting biodiversity. Maybe, maybe I'm optimistic that that's going to happen, but uh, you know, that's the job of, of people who are doing political strategy, which is not what I do. Right, um, right. So, you know, my, my contribution is I'm going to do the thinking, um, <laughs> not against XR. I'm going to draw on my own practice, which is not just thinking I should know and you know try and contribute to that debate may i'm not sure yet how to constructively contribute to it but i'm sure i mean in terms of xino and other forms 
So, yeah. Well, I think your perspective is extremely valuable and it's coming from a very, uh, you know, collaborative place. Like you're not trying to impose this. You're just trying to challenge people to think a little bit outside of, again, their assumptions and their, their kind of deeply held, um, I don't know, uh, notions of how this is supposed to play out and work. Because like you said, we're not really, what, do you, what does it mean to win in this context of, of halting bio, of a halting biodiversity loss within this framework? Um, and I think that needs to be seriously considered because I think, uh, uh, you're asking a much bigger question. I'm sorry. I just see the, <laughs> the other question you're asking. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the, sorry to interrupt you. Again. No, you're fine. The, the, the ultimate, uh, not the ultimate, that sounds a bit extreme, but <laughs> an ultimate, because it's definitely very important. Um, it's a question that I ask myself every day and I debate with, or I discuss with one of my favourite uh, colleagues and ex-lecturers, which is, you know, what, it, what is it that you desire? Is it, to, is it that you desire this particular type of landscape and this bunch of species that you want to hang out with and this group? Um you know, what is it that you're actually trying to fight for? Because if you expand into wider history, the amount of uh, changes that have happened have been crazy. So what is it you're trying to achieve? Just simply saying that you want to halt biodiversity loss uh, in and of its sake is actually lying to yourself. You're not admitting that there is some uh, personal stake and there's nothing wrong with, uh, with having some human stake in that. It's uh, just deciding what, what that is and whether you desire that to be a particular abstract image that you're going to enforce on the world or whether that's going to be like a multi-species negotiation and dialogue that you don't actually know what the outcome is. But what you're happy with is that you're in a process that uh, you know, is, 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 about, is about life, not about freaking killing stuff to, to save the little bit that you have left. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, man, I I am completely on board with everything you're saying. I, I really appreciate what you've written here. And I and like you said, you're you're kind of figuring this out as you go along. And uh, But I think you've already, for people that at least have read this article, I'm sure you've uh, sparked a conversation. And that's the first step, right? That's a big, that's a big first step. Sure. Yeah, I think so sure. anyway. That's how I, I've come to see it anyway. Um, but I do want to, you know, I, I just want to say, uh, we've been talking for about an hour, so I'll just, uh, uh, just say that I want people to check out your work and I'm really hoping, you know, I, I imagine we can continue these discussions in the future. I'm excited to see what more you do, what you write and contribute to here in the future, because I think, again, you really point to some really important, uh, important things here. And so I would just ask people to check out your article published at a beautiful resistance.org, which is gods and radicals. Uh, don't shoot the messenger invasive species and halting biodiversity loss. You also have your, your website, uh, kalilavi.org and I'll provide links to all that's of that. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And if people, um, just sign up to the mailing list on there, then they'll get anything new, um that will be coming out and there is a whole bunch of stuff lined up for next year um that should be of interest to people um and just to leave a question that i'm interested for people to answer me to which sounds like a slightly different topic is a question that i'm trying to answer to myself right now 
is what would a nature documentary look like um, that wasn't based, at least from the English perspective, on a sort of David Attenborough idea of virgin uh, landscapes or defiled virgin landscapes um, and that we need to have some sort of chastity, chastity belt against defiling all of these Attenborough's virgins out there, yeah. which you know, <laughs> is pretty much what, what all the documentaries are. And they had their time and place with Holocene thinking. So if we're in the Anthropocene now, um, what would the nature documentary for the Anthropocene look like? And if you have any good suggestions, I have a bunch myself, then please get in contact with me um, to put together a whole screening list um, to try and begin to develop, uh, yeah, nature documentaries fit for the Anthropocene. Yeah, that's a, well, I mean, that's a really interesting idea. That's an interesting question. You know, what does, yeah, what does nature documentaries, what would it look like in the Anthropocene, taking into account everything that you just described as well in this discussion? Um, yeah, no, I, I would be, excited to see what could come of that uh, exploration so yeah i mean your website let's see i'm gonna look here i think uh you know i'm sure yeah there's your contact information's on there and you're on twitter as you said so i'll be sure to put people or uh, direct people towards those resources and the ability to contact you if that's what you want well, thank you so much yeah for, for <laughs> finding my article interesting <laughs> no it was no it's absolutely interesting it's a really well written piece and like i said i i work with gods and radicals quite a bit and i'd like to interview the writers i just yeah i love reading and reading this stuff on there and i was just uh tangentially i thought i'm not sure if this quite fits but i think it does so let's have a go and and uh, i was positively received yeah it... and i hope anyone listening to this um i'm always up for learning more so, yeah, don't hesitate to get in, in contact. As you can see, there's comments even underneath the article. Yes. Um, which raise some points which I don't touch on at all. Um, there's a whole aspect about colonial in colonially introduced species, which I haven't touched on, um, which is also important. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, there's a lot uh, of... If you disagree with me, please get in contact if you... <laughs> Agree or disagree on that's irrelevant. Also, get in contact. That's a like great, great challenge. I hope it goes well for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think most people have good intentions when it comes to this discussion. At least that's what I, I have faith in. I hope anyway. So, I hope that that you get good responses. And I, and again, I, I do appreciate what you're bringing to the discussion. It needs to be brought up more and more because, again, uh, the way that we deal with so-called invasive species in this time within the various contexts that we're dealing with it is just not working. I mean, just on a very practical level, it's just not working. We have to really rethink and reframe how we're going to approach these rapid changes that are coming as a result of being in the Anthropocene. Um, you know, like you said, like, what does a nature documentary look like in the Anthropocene? And that's really a part right, of that. There's one, exactly one thread of, of a thousand. So we might as well start working on, on some of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Avi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for, uh, I, I mean, I've learned stuff just by having this conversation. <laughs> Beautiful. That's a good thing to hear. So I really hope you all enjoyed that discussion with Avi. I know I did. He uh, 
he's really fun to talk with and and uh, i think we we stayed on point most of the time as far as the discussion went the topics that were discussed uh yeah i just really ask that people go check out avi's work he's a great writer and that article in particular is very important i think his uh, work needs to be acknowledged and uh you know more and more people need to really think the way that avi is thinking about these subjects so so thanks to him i i'm more uh we're aware of the subject surrounding biodiversity loss and some of the underlying assumptions that we have about what that means. Uh, if you hear a few little things in the background, that's just some cats munching on some hard food. So whatever, we just have to deal with that. <laughs> but to respond to Dave, uh, that call you you sent me, that uh, that audio you sent me featured at the beginning of the episode, I just first want to say you're very kind, and you know it's really interesting to hear people like you, Dave, because there's a few people that do call that drop me a line every so often. They've done it numerous times like you. It's good to hear that you're doing okay. I know that, well, you're struggling, obviously. There's some things going on that you're kind of mentioning there, but you're trying to keep your head above water. And that's a really hard thing to do. And as you say, we live in insane times. It's really hard to stay sane in an insane society. It's really hard, and things are getting weirder and weirder and more and more difficult as we proceed into this uncertain future, as things get more disruptive. And I'm seeing people act more strangely as well as we enter into, again, this uncertain future. So it's concerning. I I see people, I don't know, just acting very strange and, and, and insane. I could cite several examples, which I don't need to do, but I think a lot of people listening and have been that have been attracted to this project are probably feeling similar things because we live in a really insane culture and we live in a really insane time. And it's really, really hard to be healthy, insane when everything around you seems to be going the opposite direction. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that this project, that by continuing this project, that I am somehow helping maybe in some way, that the people I'm bringing onto the podcast are helping in some way in contributing to that, uh, that that kind of sanity, I guess, that we need right now. I'm trying my best to, you know, I have to say, I'm really trying my best to stay sane. It's hard. Um, and part of the way I stay sane is to do this project. So again, I'm really grateful to do it. I'm really happy to do it. And I'm learning so much. And the fact that people are supporting me in it, whether it's, you know, but calling that, drop me a line, sharing your ideas, uh, your thoughts on these things, and uh, you know all the other forms of support that I get for doing this. Uh, you know, it's just incredible. It's it's carrying me right now. I'm, for instance, sorry to talk about myself a little bit, but I will be going to Brazil here pretty soon uh, for a couple months. So if people have maybe heard that, I think I mentioned it on the podcast maybe once or twice at this point. Um, and I, of course, had this sort of fundraiser thing that I set up for Facebook and uh, GoFundMe. But the amount of support I received just for that alone is incredible. You know, it's it's going to be great. And I'll be able to do a lot more because of the, the resources that people have been able to share with me. Um, so, yeah, I want to get down to Brazil and be able to continue to do more of this stuff um, and see what's going on down there. So, so anyway, I just want to say to kind of respond, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, doing this work, it's like, I've, I see this work as being, you know, it's a, it's a web, it's a, it's a connection, there's all these little connections that are being made uh, between all these different guests that may seem very different, at least on the surface. But the fun thing about doing this work is I see the connections, and I try to bring them into 
contact with one another, so to speak, at least adjacently. So for instance, you may not have any of these people in the same room together, for instance, or even in the same book or anything like that together, but I see the connections and that's what makes this project so fun is sort of developing those connections for people and for myself. And I don't know what else to say except that, you know, Jenkinson, for instance, you mentioned Stephen Jenkinson. Um, I think by the time this episode is released, it'll, yeah, I, I would have already done this. But on, uh, let's see, what is today? So today I'm recording this on November 11th. On November 16th, which is a Saturday, I will be in Salt Lake City. And I'll be going and seeing Stephen Jenkinson with Gregory Hoskins and their band perform. Uh, they have a, uh, the last time I interviewed Stephen Jenkinson actually was about this very thing. Uh, it was about uh, Knights of Grief and Mystery Tour. Uh, they've been going around the North North America doing this amazing musical kind of spoken word thing. I mean, it's it's kind of as its own. It's not even in, it's not even a. I don't know if there's a word to describe it, but it's just a performative act. And apparently, everything I've heard has just been incredible. And Jenkinson, of course, is an incredible communicator, orator, storyteller. Uh, he himself has so many life experiences and perspectives to draw upon. Then you've got the master musician Gregory Hoskins and all the other members of that band I mean it just looks like an incredible experience so I'm really excited to go see and I know that they're still going to be doing hitting more cities around the country around the North American continent so I would ask people to go check out the Knights of Grief and Mystery tour I'm sure by the time that this episode comes out I'll be uh have already seen it but anyway yeah no I just want to say like I'm so fortunate to do this work and to have been able to talk to all the people that I've talked to. And it just makes me feel so good knowing that other people are, are resonating as well. That's important now. It's important. And, and if I can contribute in any way to maintaining a, a sense of sanity and perspective and groundedness in, in, in a very insane time, then I'm doing my job. That's all I can ask for. And it's hard. It's hard for everybody right now to to keep their head on straight and to keep their heart uh, grounded. You know, it's very hard, but we have to do it. We're we're here, and, and we know what's happening on the planet right now, and we have to do the work that's required of us right now, whatever that may be for you. And I'm trying to do my part in that, and it's a learning process. So I just want to. Dave, I just, I don't know what else to add to that. I just thank you for your beautiful message. And if anybody else wants to, to draw me a line, I know that at the very beginning of the episode, there's that little thing, but I mean, call the phone number uh, 208-918-2837, or you can drop uh, an, an audio file through the link in the description. There's a thing on the website as well that'll help you get there. So please do that if you if you want. And I would love to feature it at the beginning of an episode if you so choose. So, yeah, Dave, thank you so much. And thank you all for, for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week. Have a good one. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. And you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. And if you'd really like to sustain this work, consider supporting the project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release, and also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. 
As a great psychedelic bard Terence McKenna said, take it easy dude, but take it.